Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In today's episode of the Bravery Academy, I'm joined by Dr. Kirk Adams. At the age of five, Kirk lost his vision permanently. Today, he shares his story of navigating the world when you lose sight, the difficulties, the barriers, and the things that could make it easier. He also shares how workplaces and humans, we can be more inclusive and take away the barriers people with disability face every day. Welcome along, Kirk, to the Bravery Academy. I am thrilled to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. So, Dr. Kirk, tell me about where do you live and where are you from? Well, I live in the Pacific Northwest part of the United States. I am from here. I was born in Aberdeen, Washington. For those uh, Nirvana fans out there, I was born in the same hospital as Kurt Cobain a little fishing lumber town and uh, live in Seattle in a neighborhood called Leshai. I became blind when my retinas detached when I was five. My parents, I was born when they were in college. So they were about 25, 26 years old when my retinas detached. I was in kindergarten and I was told that, or they were told that I wasn't allowed to come back to the local public school that they couldn't accommodate a blind child that I had to go to a um, state school, specialized state school for blind kids. So they visited the Washington State School in Vancouver and did not like what they saw as far as academics. And my retinal surgeon was at, at, in Portland, Oregon. And, and uh, someone said, the Oregon State School is great. So they visited there. You know, they quit their jobs in Washington State and moved us to Oregon. Wow. So I could go to that, that special school for first, second, and third grade and learn Braille and how to travel confidently with a cane. So long, long story short, I've always lived in 
until recently, Washington and Oregon. My wife and I did a sojourn in New York City and Washington, D.C. as I ran the American Foundation for the Blind most recently. But now we're back home where we belong <laughs> in the beautiful Seattle. So, Kirk, you've actually segued beautifully into your story and why you do what you do now. Can mm-hmm. you tell me what it was like as a five-year-old going through that experience, if you can remember? Yeah, I, I can remember parts of it. So there was hemorrhaging of some blood vessels in my eyes that were congenitally weak. Not sure of the cause. It could have been a playground accident. It could have been an allergy. But the pressure from the hemorrhaging detached the retinas. And it manifested. I was, I was got on the school bus to, to go home. We lived in a suburb of Seattle and I got off at my corner and I couldn't find my way home. So it was, it was snowy. And so everything kind of looked the same. I remember that. And I remember kind of tumbling down some small embankment or something. And then a neighbor found me in her backyard, you know, crying and recognized me and took, took me to my mom who, you know, immediately knew there was something very wrong. So rushed me to a, a hospital. They quickly rushed me to another hospital where there was a retinal surgeon and I had a, had an emergency surgery and woke up the next day, basically a blind kid. I remember visiting the school for the blind in Oregon before first grade and just being enchanted by it. They uh, obviously were designed specifically to support blind children. So lots of beautiful tactile elements. This was the mid-60s, so the school was run by uh, some very well-educated hippies that did a lot of fun stuff with those blind kids. They took us horseback camping in the Sisters Wilderness area. They had us building igloos out of giant snowballs up on Mount Hood. They had us, you know, exploring the tide pools on the Oregon coast, putting our figure in the sea anemone, holding a nudibranch, and oh gosh, just, I remember backpacking into a cabin using a two-person cross-cut saw to cut wood for the fire. Remember the smell of the wood and the zip of the saw. Just a, a lot of beautiful things that really gave me three primary factors for being able to thrive as a blind adult that not every kid gets. And I think that's why I'm driven to focus on creating pathways for blind people into careers where they can thrive so there were three things one one is blindness skills so you know the stronger blindness skills the likelier you are to be able to thrive and so i was totally blind as a six-year-old so there was no question that i had to learn braille i had to learn how to use a cane the vast majority of people with visual impairments who are legally blind have some usable vision and with some kids there's there's some ambiguities. Do they really need to learn Braille? Could we use magnification? Yeah. Um, is an audio good enough? But for me, it was crystal clear. So I learned my blindness skills, Braille, cane travel, typing on a typewriter, which, you know, now is keyboarding, of course. Yep. So I got that. And then the other thing I got was a strong internal locus of control, hmm. which just means I knew in my bones from my experience at the school for blind kids that I could do what I wanted to do. I could create my own pathway. I could define my destiny as opposed to a strong external locus of control where people feel in their bones that the world is acting upon them and there's not much they can do about it. And the third thing was high expectations. 
As a, like my past, I'd never met a blind person before I woke up with some blind, blind wow. child. But they had very high expectations of me. My father was a high school basketball coach for 40 years. They were both teachers. They didn't want to see anything less than an A on a report card. You know, so I learned to love my body as a blind person, you know, a, a body that has a visual impairment, but still um, can move freely and joyfully through the world. Mm-hmm. And then I, I got had those high expectations. So I, I got kind of the three golden pillars that are required for thriving in this world um, that isn't built you know, for us with physical and mental impairments. Lots of blind kids don't get all three. There's lots of barriers to thriving. And so I think that's why I get up every day and try to do something about that. I love hearing that's how you've stepped into this leadership role. Did you have other siblings as well? That were... I have a younger brother and a younger sister. How did it influence your family? Well, I think a fairly extraordinary level of empathy mm. uh, and compassion and creativity as far as understanding that everyone's unique and everyone uh, interacts with the world differently, but that we all um, should be supported in interacting in a way that is joyful and meaningful. And so a lot of, a lot of kind of interesting adaptations just as a family. I remember one year, you know, doing an Easter egg hunt and my dad actually created kind of a, a system where he, he had, he placed eggs around in our large yard and garden, but he created a pathway of string that I would follow. I was probably six or seven. So I'd follow the string kind of maze matrix that he'd laid out to, to find each egg. Meanwhile, my brother and sister were kind of doing the traditional, you know, look for the hidden ones, like the, the ones on the string are for Kirk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's very outdoorsy fishing, crabbing, clamming. You know, I I just learned how to do that kind of thing by touch. That's a question I haven't really been asked before. How did like my family? My family's all, everyone's a teacher except for me. My sister teaches preschool kids. She's a speech pathologist. My brother, high school teacher and coach. So kind of in the caring professions, I guess. Yeah, compassion is a, a strong trait in your family, which is very special. And when, you, when you're talking about your parents, they sounded very young when this happened to them. How did yeah. they co- deal with that change? Like they obviously went, we're going to make this work as best as possible for my husband. Yeah. Well, they both came from really interesting backgrounds. My dad's father died when he was nine or 10 years old. Uh, his mother never remarried, uh, raised by a single mom. He was born in 1939, so, you know, through the 50s. And she was a nurse. She worked on an Indian reservation in southwest Washington. His father was a doctor on the Quinault Indian Reservation. After his father passed, mom raised three kids on a public nurse salary, which, which wasn't great. He okay. discovered the game of basketball when he was 13 or 14. And I, I think the, the coaches... The teammates just really became so important to him. So he was very into discipline. My mom, her father was a, worked in the, in timber. He was an independent logger in the great forests of Washington state. Her mother was a serial entrepreneur. You know, they lived in a log house when she was little and paddled a canoe into town. And her mom owned a nursing home, owned a boarding house, owned a a greenhouse to grow flowers for florist shops. 
very independent entrepreneurial pioneer spirit. So just a very interesting entrepreneurial scrappy lot of people. So I think they just kind of took it in stride, really to say this happened and what's the best we can make of this and let's, let's get on with it. How did losing your sight change your teenage experience? Well, not change it, but how did it yeah. shape oh, it? And then, yeah. Okay. Okay, Ema. <laughs> you've done these, you've done, you've interviewed people before. Um, <laughs> at the blind school, first, second, third grade, six, seven, eight, I was just, a, you know, a fish in a pond with other happy fish. I started public school in fourth grade. I was always the only blind student in my school after I left the school for the blind. But then you get into middle school, junior high, high school, it definitely was quite different than every other student. I felt like I stood out very self-conscious. In junior high, I went so far as to go to school every day and put my white cane in my locker and try to get through the day without using my cane. Wow. Because I, because I didn't want to be conspicuous. I didn't want to yeah. stand out using a cane. Instead, I stood out by falling downstairs and bumping into things. And then in the towns I grew up in, which were rural, when kids turned 16, two things happened. They, everyone got a driver's license. And most people got some sort of paid job. You know? So I did not get a driver's license. That was very isolating because it was a you know, part of the culture. We lived out of town. There wasn't public transportation. I think I probably started a grief cycle about then that I hadn't really experienced before. So 16 to 18 were probably the roughest period of my life. And then I went to college and I went to a small liberal arts college in Walla Walla, Washington, called Whitman College. Hardly anyone had a car, and everyone walked around campus. So it was a much wider variety of student as far as background experience and worldview than I had grown up with. So those were a really good four years. And then leaving school and trying to enter the world of employment, that's you know where thing, things got very challenging, again, because of all the barriers to employment. I just really appreciate you sharing that vulnerability around those tough years because many people go through that with for lots of different reasons. But mm -hmm. that, hearing the reasons why, I, I hope people that listen to this will also have compassion for people to go, how do we make it easier? Because this is a big part of what you've been doing in your world is the advocacy mm -hmm. and, and taking those barriers down for people. But you had to push through the barriers is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah so employment, for instance, only 35% of People with significant disabilities, which includes blindness, are in the workforce in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's about half the general population. So about 70% of working age adults are employed. As far as uh, actual labor bureau statistics, unemployment rate, people who are actively seeking jobs who are receiving unemployment benefits. If, it, if the general population is 4%, people are blind are 8%. So it, it's always twice as bad or half as good uh, as far as outcomes go and you know I, ideally the numbers would be the same you know, the same percentage of people with significant disabilities would be employed as everyone else wage, wage levels would be the same breadth and depth of careers would be the same but we're very very far from that have you seen it change over your career you know i would unfortunately say not very oh. much you know the numbers kind of shift between 30 35% workforce participation rate, 30%. Doesn't usually get better than 35% workforce participation rate. And the 
Now, the majority of people with significant disabilities work for government or nonprofit and NGO, which, you know, the wage levels in those sectors are, are lower than the public sector. We tend to not move up the org chart very far. A much narrower band of occupations, so a lot fewer types of jobs. And yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one that, you know, it's a complex set of issues. It's a complex problem. So there's no, no easy answer. If there was, then we, we would have fixed it. Employers have misperceptions and misconceptions about the capabilities of people with disabilities. They're, they're missing out, in my opinion, on a great labor pool. I have conversations with employers all the time just saying, you know, what kind of people are you looking to hire? They say, we want someone who's self-starter, can manage themselves, enthusiastic, loyal, creative problem solver, team player. I say, well, living as a person with a disability in this world and being able to navigate through it gives you um, great opportunities to develop unique strengths in all of the areas. So grit and perseverance and resilience and how to analyze and manage risk and all, you know, all the things that make for a great uh, employee in today's economy. Mm-hmm. And you read a book like The Talent Code, and it talks about that, how people develop unique strengths by focusing on particular challenges and overcoming particular challenges. That's that's how people become concert pianists and world champion tennis players, neurosurgeons, they focus on a set of challenges and overcome them and keep, you know, increasing the severity of the challenge and and overcoming and overcoming. That's what happens if you live in the the world uh, as a person with a significant disability, as the world was not constructed for us, neither physically, digitally, or socially, culturally. Mm -hmm. So to be able to navigate that, you, you have to develop a lot of strengths in a lot of areas. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. I think the adversity as a teacher is a really big part of why I'm doing this podcast because your story is, is, a, is a big example of that, right? And I know that you have also taken that into your university training to the next level. So can you tell me about your PhD and what sparked yeah. that interest? Yeah. Well, I was in banking and finance for my first 10 years out of college, which is a story in itself around the, the challenges of finding suitable employment. But after about 10 years, I decided I wanted to be in the nonprofit sector. I actually got the What Color Is Your Parachute book out of the library and followed every step and got clear that I should be in nonprofit. I should be in leadership and I should be working on behalf of creating opportunities for other people who are blind. And I became the CEO of a nonprofit here in Seattle, Lighthouse for the Blind, which employs blind and deafblind people in businesses, including aerospace manufacturing. So blind and deafblind machinists making parts for all the Boeing aircraft, for instance. Amazing. And uh, yeah, yeah, really cool. Really cool. You know, I got to know this nonprofit blindness sector, and there are relatively very few of the organizations serving people who are blind who are led by people who are blind. Their executive directors or, or CEOs are primarily sighted people. But, you know, God bless them for devoting their their lives to supporting people who are blind. But I, I just came to get really clear that one thing I could do would be to try and help fill this leadership gap. So I strategically got on boards, got on aerospace manufacturing boards and business boards, but also blindness-related boards. I thought, you know, there's only one me. I only have one career. I think the highest impact thing I can bring to the table is leadership. And so I better really learn how to do that well. So I started searching for doctoral programs in leadership, and I looked at quite a few. And I, I settled on one offered by Antioch University, which is based in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and has a very strong social justice history and social justice framework. My dissertation. Uh, it's called Journeys Through Rough Country. It's an ethnographic study of blind adults who self-identify as successfully employed in large mm-hmm. U.S. corporations. Because I felt that the corporate space was the place where I could make the most progress the fastest. As you know, corporations have structures and resources, there was the beginnings of kind of a groundswell around diversity, equity, and inclusion that started with race and gender. You know, I felt I, I could you know, tap into that, start broadening the conversation to be inclusive of, of disability. So I interviewed in depth a number of blind people working at big, big companies, the names you'd recognize, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, AT&T, et cetera, and asked them these semi-structured interview that basically asked each person, nine identical questions, but let the conversation wander wherever they might wander. Mm-hmm. Then I synthesized all the data and, you know, two big conclusions. One is that everyone had that strong internal locus of control. Everyone felt in their bones, they could 
create their own path. Most everyone could trace that to a, a thing, an incident, a happening that kind of cemented that sense. One young lady, when she was 10 years old, she and her twin sister who were sighted were sent off to a summer camp. And the counselors told the blind girl, you, no, you can't ride the horses. That's too dangerous. You'll just need to sit you know, on the side here while the kids ride the horses. So she and her sister snuck out of their cabin at night and got out a couple of horses, rode the horses. And she just said she just remembers galloping in the night with her sister, oh. the sense of exhilaration and freedom she had. Another person as a blind person who was trying to hide their blindness, wasn't using a cane, fell down some stairs at a construction site and got severely injured and was sent to a rehabilitation center for people who are blind. And they took her snow skiing and she learned how to snow ski. And she's been skiing for 40 years and she remembers just the sense of, again, freedom, exhilaration, moving through space, skiing. Another person grew up in New York City in a neighborhood where the 12, 13-year-old boys uh, spent their time doing bicycle tricks, like riding their bike and standing up on the handlebars. So as a blind kid, he did that, learned how to do that with his friends. So that was really enlightening to me. And then the other theme, which I should have expected, but I didn't, was everyone had a really deep sense of disappointment that they, for instance, were the only person who'd achieved the level in their company. You know, huge companies with tens of thousands of employees that they were the only blind person at such and such level or that even after working for a company for 10, 12, 15 years, they ha- still had to struggle and battle to get you know, the accommodations they needed when the company might change a software system. You know, they, they had to you know, fight to get the uh, modifications they needed to be able to do their jobs. There, there were a number of other findings, but those were the two strongest ones, that strong internal locus of control and then the, the disappointment that everyone felt. Disappointment's a really interesting one though. And obviously this is one disability, but this this is applicable to so many other ones, right? That we're yeah. not making it yeah. easy for people to to be in the world and, and we're not doing that. Then we're not being inclusive, obviously, but we're not allowing people to feel like they have autonomy and a space in the world mm-hmm. and culturally connected and socially connected. Yeah. Well, my, my image is there's a cold winter night and there's a crackling bonfire and there's a circle of people around it, warm and cozy and chatting and out, out in the cold dark. There are a lot of other people who aren't in the circle and uh, maybe fearful to try to join the circle, feeling they might not belong, might not be welcomed. So how do we create that culture in organizations and communities and ecosystems where people feel comfortable and welcome and how do we create conditions where we can make the fires big enough and make the circle large enough so that everyone's included how do we because it's like that, that's your yeah. big work yeah. right? like, what's, yeah. what's your learnings yeah, yeah, from yeah. that <laughs> yeah well i think a lot of it is proximity and intentionally creating conditions for proximity Blindness, for instance, is a low in- incidence disability. Many, many people have never had a conversation with a blind person, certainly never worked with a blind person. So as we kind of find instances of inclusion success, I think to build upon those is, is the strategy. As an example, uh, Walgreens Corporation, 2007, their 
chief supply officer was a gentleman named Randy Lewis. He had an autistic son. He's retired now, but he, he was tasked to build a large warehouse and distribution center in South Carolina uh, from the ground up. And he convinced Walgreens leadership to design it to be inclusive of people with developmental disabilities, which they did. 550 employees, 40% of their employees have developmental disabilities. And they partnered with a small university there to track all the data. So they, they have all the data that shows it's the most productive distribution center. It has the lowest turnover, the lowest absenteeism, the best safety record, the best employee satisfaction. And, you know, you go there and talk to, to their management and they talk about the fact they've been in warehousing and distribution for 35, 40 years. They've never worked in a place where everyone cared about each other, where everyone was always actively supporting one another. And I take people there. I work with clients who are in manufacturing who kind of have a notion. We kind of like to hire some people with disabilities. It's probably a good thing to do, right thing to do. I take them there and they spend a day and they see it. They talk to employees and they talk to management. They come out they're ready to do it themselves. So I think that's a strategy that works. You know, there are some other instances, a person who run, runs a sophisticated internal help desk for Cisco had a blind roommate in college. He was tasked with kind of turning around the performance of this help desk department. He contacted his local location rehabilitation agency. They sent him some blind applicants. He hired some blind people and he hired some more and then he hired some more. And productivity is where it should be. And employee satisfaction is great. Quality is the best. Satisfaction to their customers is the best. So, th so there are examples. And I, I think just to build upon those is, is a, a, a winner, a, a winning approach. What did your time being in New York and being the president and CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind teach you? Mm -hmm. well, well, it taught me how to use the subway system in New York City. Wow. I can't um, imagine that. Was, well, blind people who grew up there just do it second nature. I'd, I'd never had that experience. So I learned how to do that. I think what it taught me is that although the nonprofit NGO structure is a beautiful thing, it's also limited in its flexibility and ability to be nimble. Here, here in the U.S., every nonprofit is required to have a board of directors. So you're working with a board of people who are volunteers or giving and donating their time. They have a fiduciary responsibility and a strategic responsibility. So by nature, very risk averse as they should be. They're there to protect you know, the, the organization. I, I learned that as far as the pros and cons of, of that structure, at this point in my career, you know, I'm 62. I'm not going to be here forever. I need to get stuff done. And I just felt compelled to be able to do things more quickly, be more creative, take more risks. I can risk my own resources in a way I couldn't risk the resources, you know, of a nonprofit organization that were contributed by, by donors. So that's a pretty clear takeaway for me at this stage. One of my questions was around losing your sight and what that's taught uh -huh. you by, by not having that tool, mm -hmm. you have what's changed with what you now, how you feel and sense the world. Two things. Uh, one is microaggressions, and I'm married to an African-American woman. I'm, I'm white. Um, my kids are biracial. They're adults. They identify as, as uh, being African-American. So I have that intersectionality of experience where 
people who are not in the dominant culture experience these microaggressions just constantly. Very rarely are they um, intended with malice. They're usually just unconscious comments people make. I fly a lot. My wife comes on some trips if it's a place she wants to go and you know, we'll be in the TSA line. Can, can he give us his ID? We're sitting in a restaurant. You know, what, what would he like to eat? Right. Hey, I climbed Mount Rainier. Mm. I, I have a doctorate. I, I can tell you what I want. And my wife will say, please address Dr. Adams directly. Amazing. But, you know, I see my kids as biracial people experiencing microaggressions as you know, people make kind of r- racially tinged comments that, you know, they may have grown up saying, they may not even be thinking about it. So microaggressions is one thing. I think I realize that every kind of marginalized people experience that. We have a lot of uh, indigenous people here in the Pacific Northwest, Native yeah. American people. So just just things like sports teams, you know, name the Warriors, you know, the Indians, you know, mascots, caricatures of of Native people. You know, that that's that's the microaggression. The other thing is just the the medical model versus the social model of disability. So the medical model is still the prevalent one, where if you have an impairment. So I have an impairment, a visual impairment. I can't see. My retina is already attached, but that's an impairment. So the medical model was, okay, you have an impairment, you're broken. Medical science will do its best to fix you. If it can't fix you, then you're a disabled. You're, you have a disability and you're less than. You can't contribute at the same level as everyone else. And then the more useful true model is the social model where you see disability as a social construct in that I'm only in a disabling situation if engaging with the environment around me with my impairment doesn't allow me to fully function. So just a simple example, I'd say if I'm CEO of American Foundation for the Blind, I'm running a board meeting, I have my agenda in Braille, I have my financial statements in Braille, I can read Braille, I have a visual impairment. However, I'm able to access the information and run the meeting at a par uh, with anyone else. I'm not in a disabling situation at that point. If you handed me a print agenda and print financial statements, then my impairment engaged with the built environment of that printed paper, Mm -hmm. which I can't read, that puts me in a disabling situation. And I'll often, when I'm speaking at a group, you know, in an auditorium to say, how, how many people here are under five feet two? Some people will clap. And I will say, you are in a disabling situation when your height engages with the built environment of an eight foot shelf. You've yep. got something on an eight foot shelf. You want to get it down. You, you can't reach it. So you have to get a tool like a step ladder. And then you're not in a disabling situation because you have a tool you can use or you create a team. You, you find your tall roommate or neighbor and have a conversation about them getting that down for you. Some simple, simple examples, but we've got these built physical environments and now obviously digital environments and then social cultural environments largely constructed by non-disabled people that I think various numbers, some say 15% of people uh, globally have a disability. So that means 85% don't. Yeah. So the world is, you know, built by people without disabilities, for people without disabilities, largely that's been our history. And so we're, us with impairments, whether they be hearing, 
vision, mobility, whatever, when we're placed in a situation where the environment isn't built for us to operate in efficiently, then we're in disabling situations. It's a very good example. Thank you, Kirk. The whole point of this podcast is in the Bravery Academy is around figuring out how you build those tools in your life and the tools mm-hmm. that you've shared today around the internal um, drives, that understanding of that locus of control and the skills that you need to make it less of a barrier is a really good teaching experience for anybody listening to this episode today. Thank you for sharing about your family piece too. Can you tell me what it was like to date your wife and to go through that experience? Oh, well, she would probably have a different different story, but it's actually a good story. We went to a small college, about 330 entering freshmen. And they asked you to send in your senior high school picture and a paragraph about yourself. And they put it all in a booklet and mailed it out so that you could see who your classmates would be and learn a little bit about them. And I asked my father and brother to please give me some visual information about the young ladies in the book. And we sat at the kitchen table and had a beer and they flipped through the book. My dad said, Rosalind Jackson, West Seattle High School, best looking girl in here. <laughs> Close the book, put it on the table. And uh, first week of college in our uh, freshman dorm, people were introducing themselves in the cafeteria. And a young lady at my table said, Rosalind Jackson, I went to West Seattle High. I made a, made a note of that. And we had a class together, Sociology 115, Social Problems. And after the first midterm Dr. Farrington asked me to stay after class, and he said, you know, you seem to have a really good grasp of the material, and one of your classmates is is struggling a bit, and would you be interested in doing some tutoring? (laughs) And I said, well, who is that student? He said, that's um, Rosalind Jackson. I said, yes, yes, sir, please. I would would (laughs) love to do some tutoring. So we, we started out as classmates and then friends. We spent lots of time together and got to know one another. And to her credit, I think she overcame a lot more reservation about it than I did, both from a disability and a, a racial yeah. standpoint. But we kind of banded together, we just got to the point where we saw ourselves being together for the rest of our lives and got married and had our kids. Now we have our first grandchild, who's the love of our life. I just love the layers to it, but also... Again, there's adversity and pain in that, right, of non-acceptance that you've had to struggle with along that journey. Yeah. So one really interesting thing about race, I grew up in very small towns, primarily white population. My dad was a very competitive basketball player. We played with a lot of African-American teammates who came to our house. We went to their houses. And my grandfather was a, a doctor on a Indian reservation. So I, I think for someone living in such isolated rural places in the Pacific Northwest, I, I think I had a out of the ordinary exposure to different types of people growing up, which it was a blessing. Can I ask you, what do you think bravery is? I think bravery is putting others before yourself and acting on it to consider the other as important, vital, and human, and to accept the responsibility to help them thrive and to take actions toward that end 
that uh, may be new, may be uncomfortable, may be scary, and doing it anyway. You have been an absolute pleasure to speak with today. I feel like every interview that I have in this podcast gives me a gem and a little window into how somebody shows up in the world and how we can create bravery in every day. And your role that you're doing in business and in leadership is uh, truly inspiring. So thank you so much for what you're doing and you're sharing your, all your layers of your story yeah. today. Yeah, well, thank you. You're a good interviewer. You, <laughs> made me, you. you made me talk about stuff I've never really talked about you know, in this kind of forum before. So good, good on you. Uh, I have a superpower as a physio that I get to all the little nuts and cracks and what's yeah, happening in people's right. lives. Yeah, like to, that's right. Didn't know it was going to work so well on the podcast, so thank you. Mm-hmm. And if anybody wants to, you know, learn more about the how they can help or support people, yeah. where could they go? What could they do? You know, they could reach out to me. LinkedIn is something I am on every day. So it's mm-hmm. Kirk Adams. My company's called Innovative Impact LLC. My email address is my first initial and last name, K Adams at InnovativeImpact.Consulting. I really appreciate that. Your time, your wisdom, and your passion of helping others. So thank you today, Dr. Kirk, for thank you. your time. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level, visit patreon.com forward slash the bravery academy to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes your feedback means the world to us so please take a moment to give us a five-star review on apple podcasts thank you for being part of the bravery academy community stay brave stay curious and keep challenging yourself to grow until next time